This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And uh, welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, December the 11th, 2011. Next week will be our final show of uh, 2011. Of course, the following week is uh, Christmas, uh, the, the, the radio station here, AM 740, the all-new AM 740, Zuma Radio, will have a... Uh, a day of Christmas uh, music programmed for you. So I'll have the day off, fireside with the uh, the little ones, and uh, we'll join you uh, the uh, the next uh, Sunday, which will be very early on in 2012. Now, next week, uh, Patrick White from Conspiracy Culture down on uh, Queen Street West, 1696 Queen Street West, will be along with his annual sort of must-read, must-see list uh, from the... Uh, the conspiracy field and paranormal field. Of course, conspiracy culture is a, a wonderful uh, book uh, bookstore, primarily books and uh, DVDs and CDs and so forth. And uh, you might also find, if you're looking for that last-minute gift, uh, a copy of Strange Planet Volume 2 from yours truly down there. That's uh, Patrick White. Conspiracy Culture will be here in studio next week. Uh, I had... Uh, just clearing out the mail after uh, returning home from uh, Greece and wading through email and voicemail and uh, and uh, regular snail mail, and I came across a um, a, a postcard from Pearl Harbor. Uh, you you will recall a a, a fine young woman uh, celebrating her 16th birthday. It was a surprise gift to her from her parents. Uh, she was surprised by. Uh, uh, she she came on the show, sat in on the show. Vanessa was her name. And a big fan of the show, so we had her here. Anyway, just got a postcard from her and her family. They're in Pearl Harbor, the Burlington Teen Tour Band, I believe uh, they, were, they were called. I'm not sure when they were down there, but I just got the postcard now, so uh, I'm assuming they're back home in Burlington. Uh, so uh, to Vanessa, a mom, and, uh, and uh, I believe it's Wayne, uh, thank you for that. Um, very, very timely, of course, uh, Pearl Harbor. Now, one of the things about doing a weekly show... Uh, that falls on a Sunday. Sometimes we miss important anniversaries that fall midweek, for example. Uh, the anniversary of John Lennon's assassination, of course. 
uh, passed by, and also the the uh, the day that will live in infamy, as uh, FDR called it, the uh, supposed surprise ta- attack on on Pearl Harbor by the uh, the Japanese on December seventh, nineteen forty one. Well, that happened on Wednesday, the anniversary. Uh, but here we are, uh, seventy years later, and uh, still a lot of questioning. Despite the fact, I think there were something like nine or ten official inquiries uh, into Pearl Harbor. You contrast that to uh, one uh, inquiry into uh, official inquiry into nine eleven. Nine or ten inquiries into uh, into um, uh, the events of Pearl Harbor, and some are still maintaining that uh, the U.S. had foreknowledge, that they had broken the Japanese uh, codes and they knew the attack was coming and it was a a way of either letting it happen or making it happen, cornering the Japanese and making it happen so that uh, they could galvanize public support, uh, end the the isolation doctrine in the United States and get on into the war. Well, we are about to, uh, to learn some new information about Pearl Harbor in just a moment. Let me give you, before we get to that, let me give you a quick heads up what's coming up in hour two. Our uh, paranormal investigator, Rosemary Allen Guiley, uh, will be here uh, with her new book, Talking to the Dead. And uh, that should be interesting. That's uh, Midnight, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, first, as I mentioned, uh, we are going to talk Pearl Harbor and a few other items, because he's uh, just uh, nicely back from a, um, uh, a research investigation a tour of Syria and Lebanon. And uh, I'm speaking of historian, a journalist, a lecturer, broadcaster, author, Webster Tarpley. Webster, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very Show. much. Glad to be with you. Let me just quickly point out as well, a 9-11 synthetic terror made in the USA, the latest edition available to book buyers. And this this edition how, now has lists all of the, the 46 drills that were going on in the days leading up to and the day of 9-11. That's the latest right. edition. All right. Uh, before we get to uh, to Pearl Harbor, just quickly give us a um, um, a sketch of what your findings were during your uh, your tour in uh, Syria and Lebanon. Well, based on going to the city of Homs, which is supposedly the center of the rebellion, and not just Homs, but the neighborhood of Zara, which is the center of that city in terms of the rebellion, and indeed visiting the hospital of the hottest neighborhood in the hottest town in. Syria, uh, what you have on the Western media is a big lie. Uh, the reality that's going on is not a political rebellion or a political movement, but it is the importation of death squads, of terrorist commandos, of groups of killers uh, into Syria who are carrying out murder and mayhem uh, against the civilian population. And when I visited Homs, the people said that their biggest problem was that snipers, cowards, are shooting at them from the roofs of the various uh, buildings. And their big demand was not nothing about uh, human rights, really, or maybe it was human rights. They said they wanted more heating oil to heat their homes, but above all, they wanted the Syrian army to take up permanent positions on the roofs of these of these houses so that the, the, the cowardly snipers and death squads that were operating there and killing them would be suppressed and driven away, and it wouldn't take that much. Uh, this, this, I believe, is the issue that the, uh, that's going on right now. That this, there's a, a story in the press that the Syrian army 
is preparing a big move back into Homs in force. And the U.S. is saying, don't you dare, don't you dare, we'll be so concerned. Well, that is protecting terrorists, because the people that are doing the shooting, some of them are Syrians. They call themselves the Free Syrian Army. Uh, those are deserters, draft dodgers, criminal elements, uh, drug smugglers, to be sure. But then you've got the larger group in terms of the numbers are Chechens, Chechen terrorists left over from Russia, Al-Qaeda types recycled through Libya, Al-Qaeda types recycled from, uh, from Iraq. Basically, the entire collection of patsies that's been floating around the Middle East for decades now. So this been... is Libya revisited, basically the same playbook. Yes, except without the, without the credibility that came in Libya from having at least a part of the country, right, Benghazi, Tobruk, Derna and, and Tobruk, there was, a, there was an area, that Cyrenaic area, which the rebels were able to control. So the rebels had cities under their control, at least with the help of NATO bombing. They, they, took, they, they got control and then they kept it thanks to the NATO bombing. So that there were cities under rebel control and there were, there were fighting fronts. Whereas, uh, i just compare you, um, when you go into, when you went into Tripoli, when you went to Libya, say in, in June or July, on your road from Tunisia to, to, to Tripoli, you'd pass probably 50 checkpoints, and, and you know, there was military all over the place. But when you go to Syria, it's just absolutely normal. You go to a normally functioning international airport, there's no particular military presence that you can see, at least at the airport. You drive into Damascus, uh, no, no particular military, and then I, I drove around with no supervision, Nobody telling you where you could go or not go uh, with a group of, uh, of journalists and, and, and writers. And we went from Damascus to Homs. We went on to Tartus. We went on to, um, to Banias and then back. And we were driving all around. We were based in a, in a place called Kara for a while, which is halfway between Damascus and, and, uh, and Homs. And there, we didn't see any. We saw one tank transporter with no tank on it. And it wasn't until we were on the way to Beirut that we saw 20 or 25 army trucks go by. That was the biggest uh, military presence that we saw. President so, Assad was recently on, uh, interviewed by Bar- Barbara Walters, and uh, some are saying that he appeared to be uh, del- you know, delusional. That, that no, he's... no, I think he helped himself. He's a reasonable guy. Look at him. Yeah, I think it's very good for him to go on television, because uh, what, what the West is going to do, right, NATO intelligence, is going to try to demonize him. They're going to try to make him look like Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi and, and God knows what. But and he's none of those, right? He's, a, he's an optometrist. He's, a, he was, he's an ophthalmologist. An ophthalmologist. He's a, he's a London, uh, he's a Harley Street doctor, so he speaks nice English, and he's reasonable. And what did he say? He said that, that there, there are, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda people are killing the, the Syrian population. In other words, he is anchored in reality. Barbara Walters and her crew of liars and you know winners of the Goebbels prize they are they live in this echo chamber of NATO intelligence which is remember the gay girl of Damascus um, a couple yeah. of months ago there was this story right right this this lesbian woman in Syria who was writing a blog about about how awful it was under Assad and it turned out that that was a uh, that was a US academic operating in Scotland and his wife who worked for the American Friends Service Committee, which is a group that has been, uh, I, well, it's been attacked in, in public print as 
a CIA front organization for low these many years. This sounds like a repeat of the uh, the um, the uh, the incubator story out of Kuwait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Except that all of the coverage in the New York Times and the London Daily Telegraph and and all the, the you know the usual uh, suspects that was all based on the gay girl of Damascus, and then it turned out that was a fraud. That was an imposter. Writing it from somewhere in Scotland, I think, at the time. Why, do the, why does the West want Assad? Wait, but there's oh. more. Okay, okay. But now we've got the Syrian Observatory for Civil Rights. When you turn on the TV, it says, Syrian activists say that 25 people were killed today. Who says? The Syrian Observatory for, Civil, for Human Rights. This is based in London. It seems to be run by uh, a group that it's associated with the half-brother of the former president, Hafez Assad. So therefore, it's a disgruntled you know, cadet branch of the family. And they put this out. And what do they base it on? Where's the proof? Where's the substantiation? Where's the documentation? Well, there is none. It's a big lie. So there's a NATO intelligence big lie operation in London that puts out this stuff. So we, we did have the gay girl in Damascus. Now we've got the Syrian observatory. They put out their tissue of lies, and that's what you read in every newspaper in the world. And I can tell you, I was the first group into Homs, and it's a lie. There, there is not a political movement in that sense. There are people who, they came out and demonstrated, say, in March, April, May, before it got really bloody. But right now, what it is, is... They say 4,000 dead. At least half of those are people in the Syrian army and people in the, uh, in the Syrian security forces. And who are they fighting? They're fighting terrorists that have been brought in. And the, again, the difference between this and Libya is that in Libya there was a front. Uh, in this place that I went to, Banias, the, the attempts to create a front were all done from the periphery in. In other words, you look at the different places. There's a place called Dara. That's the Jordanian frontier. There's another operation along the Iraq-Kurdish frontier. There's a place called um, Edlin, I think it's called, which is on the Turkish frontier. And then above all, the Lebanese frontier, because that's where Saad Hariri of Lebanon sends in the stuff. So that's the story with Homs. Homs is essentially very close to the Lebanese border, and it's essentially these, these death squads that are shipped in from Lebanon that are doing what's going on there. So okay. when they say 25 people were killed today, I can tell you who that was. I talked to these people in this hospital, and, and I talked to women doctors and nurses and uh, English professors. Their big problem in life is, how can I get home from work without having a sniper shoot me? And where's the Syrian army? And their critique of, of Assad was, he's too soft. Get the army in here. Get these snipers, these killers and death squads off our backs. All right, we've got to take a time out. All right, Webster, we'll come back and you'll tell us why the West or NATO or whomever wants Assad pushed aside as part of this uh, so-called Arab Spring, the uh, part two, if you will. And uh, then we'll get around to discussing uh, some new insights that you have as uh, we just recently commemorated the 70th anniversary of the uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. All that and more coming up on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now 
at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Webster Griffin Tarpley is our guest, and uh, his website, Tarpley, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net, Tarpley dot net. You can read his uh, his uh, dispatches there, and uh, we're talking about his recent trip to Syria. Assad, not the demon. He's been made out by the West. He's a, he's a moderate. He's maybe too moderate, according to uh, uh, to some in his country. And uh, what's going on there now is not uh, another one of these, uh, uh, you know, popular spontaneous uprisings uh, from some pro-democracy group. According to Webster Tarpley, what we have going on in Syria is sort of uh, somewhat similar to what happened in Libya, where we have uh, uh, death squads being shipped into the country to stir up trouble, including al-Qaeda, a CIA-backed uh, al-Qaeda. And uh, the question then is, Tarpley, uh, Webster rather, who wants Assad out and why? Well, the United States, the British, the Israelis, the French, NATO intelligence, um, they want him out. And here's the idea. Take a look at the map. And remember, the U.S. is now undergoing a Mayaguez moment. The U.S. is leaving Iraq. The last time you had such a, in, you know, ignominious, shameful moment for the U.S. where you're confronted with the the futility of the losses and the, the tragedy of all this was it was April 1975 in Saigon with the helicopters lifting off the the U.S. embassy and these poor devils trying to hang on to the runners underneath. So the U.S. is leaving Iraq now. What will that leave? It's a belt of territory that looks like this: Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan. That's a good chunk of the world. And this is all basically under anti-imperialist, anti-NATO auspices, one way or another. And le- you know there are exceptions here and there, but Lebanon is pretty much a, a General Aoun and uh, and Hezbollah co-production, in which it's a Christian Shiite alliance, a Maronite Shiite alliance. Very, very interesting. And General Aoun, of course, is a great guy. He's like the De Gaulle of uh, of Lebanon, and he, some of the some of the things I'm telling you come from him because he has great intelligence. So you have this entire belt. So what the U.S. is, is concerned with doing, and the, and the British and so forth, uh, the Sykes-Picot powers, right, the French, cutting it all up into pieces, is to break up that continuous block. So if you, if you overthrow Assad and the Ba'ath Party with a color revolution, except it's not a color revolution, it's death squads, right? There are, there's virtually nothing in terms of... Um, of demonstrations in that sense. We looked for them. We couldn't find them. And what you're shown on Al Jazeera and France 24 and so forth, those are recycled things. Those could be, you know, from Egypt uh, three mo- uh, six months ago, or some of it's from Syria, but, you know, in a different season, in the springtime or in the summer, when, when some illusions were still possible. So, um, they, they want to essentially put in a, a, a regime of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, of course, is in a worldwide alliance with the CIA. They're fighting forces of the al-Qaeda on the one side and Salafists on the other, closer to, to Saudi Arabia perhaps than, than the al-Qaeda people who might come from, from uh, Afghanistan or, or Pakistan. 
And they want, obviously, to you know, privatize everything, loot it, sack it. But, but mainly, if you, if you take over Syria, then Hezbollah has no strategic depth, and Iran has no Arab ally. Uh, they might have other allies, right? They might have Iraq under certain circumstances, but, but in terms of a real solid ally, then, uh, then, then the, the one that they need is Syria. And if, if Syria falls away, then maybe Iraq can also be pulled away, too, right? Because and when I say when I say Muslim Brotherhood, that means Saudi Arabia. That's who pays for the for the Muslim Brotherhood. So uh, there's also the question of Tartus, city that I visited. I got to see these things. There's a Russian naval base there, and right now you haven't been told this by the media, but there's now in that base, operating from that base, and in the Eastern Mediterranean in general, there's a pretty formidable Russian fleet. It includes the aircraft carrier Admiral Kuznetsov. It includes the heavy cruiser, which packs uh, all kinds of uh, missiles, the Moskva. There are three, four, or nobody really knows how many nuclear submarines going around there. There's an anti-submarine warfare ship and some other auxiliary vessels. And the U.S. is now pu- pulling uh, aircraft carrier battle groups into the eastern Mediterranean, setting up this lunatic scene of a confrontation. There's also a report that the Russian fleet has brought a group of these, uh, I believe it's the S-300 surface-to-air missile. There are even stories that you have the bastion system of coastal defense featuring the Yakonsk uh, super-duper uh, cruise missile, which could just sink a carrier, or maybe one or two of them could. Sounds like we're back in the, in the, in the Cold War, Webster. Yeah, well, you are. You've got the U.S. Uh, going wild, really. It, it, part of it has to do with the collapse of the, of the European and U.S. banking systems, the collapse of the derivatives bubble that goes on, the, the tremendous desperation that, that is felt, uh, the, the hysteria in the State Department and the CIA. They feel that they've got to take this Arab Spring. It's the only thing they have to work with. The Arab Spring, of course, is a fraud. It's a wave of destabilizations. In Tripoli, it was a military coup with some, you know, some golden youth agitating in the streets as camouflage. Similar in Egypt, the golden youth in the square and the military coup behind the scenes. Then in Libya, it began to get very ugly because the, the government fought back and about half of the population fought back. And you've, you've got uh, continuous guerrilla warfare in, in Libya right now. That has never ended, and I don't think it will end. But Syria is the most extreme because the basis for this inside the country is almost nothing. There are some people who are willing to go out and have a demonstration, right? They don't like Assad. They don't like the Ba'ath Party. One guy told me his, he wanted to go and demonstrate because his big complaint was he didn't have a Mercedes-Benz yet. That was his <laughs> speed. So I had to tell him, you know, you're going to have to console yourself. I mean, because I, I don't have one either. Uh, a woman, an upper, upper middle class woman, said her main thing she wanted to organize uh, politically, and indeed she was doing it, and she was doing it. There's a kind of um, loyal opposition that is in, in dialogue with the, with the government. Um, there's also a, a social safety net there, right? Yes, yes. Um, in Syria, you can buy 2.2 pounds, right, a kilogram, of really good bread for about 20 American cents. Um, school is free. The bus to bring you to school is free. Uh, the books are free. The school uniform is free. The, uh, the lunch you get in school is free. Um, education at all levels is completely free. Daycare is free. Health care is free. Uh, this is a, a remarkable thing. 
Uh, the cost of uh, the average electric bill for a family is about $5 a month. The price of electricity is kept very low. Uh, again, the problem that they have is this heating oil as a result of the, of the NATO sanctions. So naturally, uh, the IMF and the World Bank and, and you know, the, the, the great uh, uh, powers of, of, uh, of Wall Street and the city of London, they hate this, right? This is a thorn in their eye to see such a social safety net. So they want to go in there and loot the place. I, I just got a report from, um, from Libya tonight that uh, the Israeli businessmen are pouring into, into Tripoli, Libya, buying up all the property. So uh, that doesn't sound too good for the... Uh, for the future of Libya, so something similar going on, I think. In uh, I, uh, can in Assad Syria, hold on? Can Assad hold on to power? Pardon me. Can Assad hold on to power? Can he weather sure. this? Sure. The, the only way the only way you're going to get Assad out is through an invasion, and that would be done if the Turks can be duped and gulled. In other words, if uh, it, it's reported that some some weeks Obama is on the phone with Erdogan every day, trying to get him to invade Syria. Uh, that's the only hope. Uh, it is a, a mood of megalomania, vanity, and ambition that grips Erdogan, who essentially is essentially a creature of the Saudi-funded Muslim Brotherhood, and his um, foreign minister, that guy Dav- Davutoglu, who he seemed to be intelligent, but it turns out he's also got this megalomania that they want to have greater Turkey they want to go back to the Ottoman Empire. Well, the greatest of the Turks of the 20th century is Ataturk, and his main strategic principle is it's impossible to have the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire is bad for the Turks and therefore should be liquidated. Now, these two come along and say, oh, no, we know better. We want to recreate the Ottoman Empire. That is incalculable folly that will bring nothing but ruin to the Turks. So they should be content inside their borders. And as General Aoun pointed out to me, Turkey is the weakest of these countries. It is split 50-50 between secular and Islamic, and it has this huge Kurdish minority, which if, if Turkey is embroiled in a war, the Kurds will rise up against the, the, Kurdish, uh, the, the, the Turkish government, and they will do that with help from inside the Iraqi enclave. Uh, and there's also an Alawite minority inside Turkey who are the people that's the, it is the sort of quasi-Shiite group to which President Assad belongs. And they would also rise up in such a case. So Turkey might well be, be, be torn to pieces. So what you see is what I always warned about, Obama and Brzezinski, right, who was always there behind the scenes, the, the, the objection they had to you know, attacking Iraq is they would say, you can't go around attacking these countries, right? It's too expensive. It's uh, going to get you hated and isolated. What you want to do is play one of them against another, get them to destroy each other, and then you rule the world for another hundred years. Uh, the grand so chess that game. That would be the, the Turkish attack on, on Turkey, right. which I hope will not come. And let's, I'm sure uh, the Russians have warned them, too. Don't do it. Let's grab a quick call from uh, Richard in Hamilton, and then we'll move on to Pearl Harbor. Richard, uh, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, good evening. Um, I've listened to your program quite a quite a bit, and I'm a first-time caller. Welcome. Um, I've noticed uh, in the Middle East that all the countries are um, have have got revolutions going, except for one country, and that's uh, Iran. Uh, it's my belief that Iran is basically behind all this uh, trouble in in the Middle East. 
Am I correct, or am I up no, wrong? No, I'm, I'm afraid this this is a this is a misconception. In other words, the 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 wave, the so-called color revolutions, the CIA people power coups, the destabilizations that are known among the naive as the Arab Spring or the Arab Awakening. This is a pure CIA MI6 British uh, DGSE, right? Direction Générale des Services Extérieurs for the for the people that can follow that, and the Mossad. Um, so they're trying to overthrow all these Arab governments. The, the objection to somebody like Mubarak was that he was entrenched, and he could say no, and he did say no. And the U.S. said, we want bases in Egypt, and Mubarak said no. And the U.S. said, we want uh, Egyptian troops in Afghanistan, and the answer was no. And we want Egyptian troops in Iraq, and the answer was no, and no. And eventually they said, well, we're going to coup you with the help of this Field Marshal Tantawi. And the coup was run by Samantha Power and Michael McFowl and the National Security Council here in the White House, on the phone with Tantawi saying, get Mubarak out now. So that's the way it works. Uh, no, the Iranians, the Iranians were running as fast as they could to try to catch up with it and call it an Islamic revolution, which in most cases it was not. They thought that they might be able to to grab hold of some of it, but they, they haven't been able to do that. All right, and Richard, right now with Syria, the Syrian destabilization is aimed, that is a gun pointed at the heart of Iran, because that's their great friend, is Syria. All right, uh, Richard and Hamilton, thank you for the oh, call. Thanks for asking my question. All right, listen, sure. we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. When we come back, let's um, uh, shift uh, directions and talk uh, Pearl Harbor with Webster Tarpley, tarpley.net, the website. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will join us in about a half hour to talk about her new book, Talking to the Dead. All right, right now we're going to uh, talk Pearl Harbor. Just commemorated the 70th anniversary of the uh, Japanese attack on the U.S. naval base on the island of Oahu. Hawaii, December 7th, 1941. The question uh, ever since the, that, that uh, event was how and why was the United States caught off guard? How much and when did American officials know about the Japanese plan for the attack? But before we get back to Webster Tarpley, uh, we're just going to say hello very quickly to uh, Vanessa, uh, who joined us here on her 16th birthday. I just received a postcard um, uh, from Pearl Harbor. And uh, Vanessa, are you there? I am. Hello. Hi. Hi there. So, uh, you were with a Burlington teen tour band, is that correct? Yeah, we were um, the only non-American va- band invited to the 70th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And uh, y- your um, this is a high school band? Perf- this is okay. um, a marching band. Uh, yeah, it's a marching band. It's not with a specific high school. It's all throughout the regions of the Burlington area. I see. And were you there on the actual date? No, unfortunately, we were there from the 21st to the 29th, but there was a different ceremony, and we took along a veteran with us who was there when he was, I believe, 17 years old and three months, and it was his first time firing a gun at the Japanese planes. So he was there on December 7th, and uh, he was aboard one of the, uh, the vessels that was attacked? He was at the Army base, and he like saw the first wave coming in, 
And then that's when he was handed this little rifle and was firing. And then when there was a break and he helped bring back all of the bodies, the injured and the deceased. Um, And then when the second wave came, he had a better gun. I'm not entirely sure which one. So he traveled with you. Yeah. Uh, Was this his first time back? I believe it was his second, but he hadn't been back in a very long time. I see. And how old a gentleman is? Uh, so, ni- uh, so he would have been uh, n- nearing 90 years old then. If this is 70 years ago, he was 17 at the time. He'd make him 87. Uh, anyway, it must have been a, an incredibly emotional uh, a time for, for both uh, him, he and you. Yeah, definitely all of us. There was about 170 of us, like well, the band members. Right. Listen, Vanessa, I really appreciate you you taking the time to drop me a postcard, and uh, it was great hearing from you again. Oh, well, it's great hearing your show. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. All right. uh, Webster Tarplay. Uh, Ten official inquiries... And uh, into the into Pearl Harbor, uh, none of them, as far as I know, uh, uh, suggested them, that there was one of them is even an official cover-up. It's the Clausen inquiry. Ah, uh, th- was this that one. this was the one that was uh, sort of uh, uh, green lighted by by Henry Stimson, the Secretary yes, of War. That's exactly right. That's okay. wonderful. This is an exercise in intimidating witnesses, and it's carried out by Stimson, Henry L. Stimson, the dean. Of Wall Street, in other words, the the Pope of the Invisible Government, because that's who he is. He's he represents the maximum satanic evil inside the U.S. at the time, and he has come into the War Department because Roosevelt can't wage World War II because he's got this huge pro-Nazi group in the Republican Party. So Roosevelt has got to ally with the pro-British group in the Republican Party and try to overwhelm the pro-Nazis, who are very numerous. And they're organized around Lindbergh, right? Charles Lindbergh, the right. guy who flew across the water. So uh, Roosevelt, in June of 1940, and this is where most people don't get it, it's a coalition government. It's a national unity government that includes some of Roosevelt's worst enemies. In particular, too, Frank Knox becomes the head of the Navy Department. He was the vice presidential candidate for the Republicans in 1936, Landon Knox, virulently anti-Roosevelt. He had his own inquiry, too. (laughs) Well, no, but Knox, Knox, uh, yeah, actually, he did the first one. He was the one who who went there first. And his his inquiry was at least more or less correct as far as the Pearl Harbor stuff goes, except he's not interested in knowing what went on in his own Navy Department, which I'll try to tell you in a minute. But the... The, the group around, around Stimson, if I go through the names, you're going to get the idea. It's just the people who have run the invisible government of the United States, or who did run it, uh, well into the Vietnam War. In other words, the, the nexus of things like the Cold War, the, the, uh, the Bay of Pigs, the Gulf of Tonkin, the Kennedy assassination, um, is in this group. So it's Stimson. He's got Robert Lovett, who chose the Kennedy cabinet. Above all, he's got John J. McCloy, ah. who is his successor. The guy that sat in the box with Hitler during the Olympics in Munich. Yeah, of course. The, they're, they're, a lot of them are, are, you know, a lot of them have very close Nazi relations. Because you have to remember, the Anglophile faction and the, and the Nazi faction only split 
in May, June of 1940. Up until that time, if you were pro Sir Neville Chamberlain, you were pro Hitler at the same time. Right? You could, and that's how it was. So inside the War Department, there's this group of Wall Street operatives: Stimson, McCloy. Now that means the the current head of the of the Invisible Government and the chairman of the board of the Invisible Government into the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Plus Lovett, who comes from the Brown Brothers Harriman bank where Prescott Bush was sending money to uh, to Hitler right as I showed in my biography 20 years ago and Harvey Bundy and his two sons McGeorge Bundy and William Bundy helped bring you the uh, Vietnam War and it was on McGeorge Bundy's watch that we had the Kennedy assassination so presumably he was not doing such a great job as head of the National Security Council so this is what people don't understand um, the the official story of Pearl Harbor says that Admiral Kimmel and Admiral Block, if they mention him at all, but mainly Admiral Kimmel, the Navy commander, and General Short, the Army commander, were derelict in their duty. As far as it goes, that's absolutely correct. They were absolutely derelict in their duty. They received, on November 27th, they received a dispatch that said, consider this a war warning carry out an appropriate defensive deployment. They were warned. What did they do? Basically nothing. They, neither one of them believed that an attack would come. Um, and they treated it as a matter of sabotage in the case of the Air Force or the Army Air Force and of submarines in the case of the Navy. And instead, they knew that the thing that they had been drilled in for a long time was that the thing was going to be a carrier attack. So they didn't respond uh, they don't deserve any any particular um, co- commendation, God knows. They, they're responsible for the destruction of their commands. The question is, why? And here, I, what I offer on this, I think, is, is unique. I don't see anybody who's done it. There are political reasons for this. These commanders are defeatists. And what does it mean to be a defeatist, right? I would urge people to, to when you look at Pearl Harbor... Consider it in the context of the fall of France the year before. The French underwent this huge defeat, similar to the huge defeat of the U.S. at at Pearl Harbor. Although the French won, they lost everything, although they didn't need to. Uh, Whereas in the the U.S. case, it was was limited to this one um, humiliating, terrible defeat. Uh, And it has to do with the fact that um, the the military uh, people like Kimmel hated Roosevelt. And you could see that he hated Roosevelt before the, uh, the attack, because he writes in his book, Admiral Kimmel's Story, he did not agree with basing the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor. He wanted to keep the fleet on the, on the uh, California coast. To keep the fleet on the California coast was essentially to say the Pacific is going to become a fascist lake where the Japanese can convert at will, Everything from India to South America is going to go under Japanese control, and um, that's defeatism. In other words, it's the refusal to fight fascism. It's the refusal to take energetic measures to fight, to fight the fascists, who the Japanese emphatically were at this point. So they're similar to these people like, uh, well, General Pétain, right, Marshal Pétain of France, who becomes the the head of the Vichy regime. It's this kind of of mentality, and I try to draw this comparison because 
I don't see anybody who's ever who's ever basically said the mystery of why Kimmel and Short don't respond to this order is because they they fundamentally don't want to. They don't want the war that is that is coming down on them. Now, having said all that, there's no no comfort for these two guys because they are they have failed. But the question is, if you have a general staff in Washington D.C., the the job of the general staff is to observe. And if you've ever been in a centralized organization, be it commercial or political or whatever, you'll know that you send out directives, and if you have 25 local organizations, right, some of them will respond and some of them won't. So you've got to pick up the phone and talk to the ones that have not responded and tell them what they have to do. And this is what did not happen uh, in the case of Pearl Harbor. So therefore, we go from the defeatism, the refusal to fight fascism, or the disinclination to fight fascism on the part of the Pearl Harbor commanders. Let's go back to Washington and look at the people who did not send them additional alerts and who refused to send them these you know, last-minute alerts. On, on the additional alerts, there's a guy in the Navy Department called Richmond K. Turner, and he is the central figure. He's not the head of the Navy on paper, but psychologically and in effect he is because uh, Admiral Stark is, is a weakling, and Richmond K. Turner runs the show. And two or three attempts are made by naval officers to say, look, we need to send more alerts to Pearl Harbor. And he, he said, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I refuse. He would block it every time. And then he covered this up at the Pearl Harbor hearings. He successfully engaged in, def- in, in evasive action, right? This Richmond K. Turner is one of the key people in, in having responsibility for the debacle of Pearl Harbor. Now, on the Army side, it's General George C. Marshall, and he's part of this clique that I mentioned, the Stimson, McCloy, Lovett, Bundy clique. They group themselves around Marshall. And he also fails to follow up on the December 27th war warning. And in particular, it looks like this guy Harvey Bundy is one of the key people in, in making sure that, that nothing happens. So they looked the other way. They saw it coming, but they chose to look the other way. Their, their imperative responsibility is if the local commanders, the theater commanders, are goofing off or failing to respond, it's up to them to say, hey, you get busy and do what we're telling you. You didn't understand, right? Because the poor General Short, right, who's General Short, you know, hates and fears the population of Hawaii. He thinks that the population of Hawaii are all Japanese enemy forces that are going to blow up his planes. So he conveniently parks them in the center of the runway. Everybody knows this. Why did he do that? Because he, it's a political attitude underneath. He hates and fears the population. He probably thinks they're either communists or they're Japanese or whatever they are. So if, if, if you see a commander goofing off like this, you've got to intervene, and they don't intervene. And then there's this question about the last 24 hours when the 14-part uh, message from Japan is coming into Washington, D.C. There's a guy called Rufus Bratton of Army Intelligence. If you've ever seen the movie Torah, 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 it covers this rather well. There are two guys. There's Commander Kramer of the Navy and, and Colonel Bratton of the Army, and they're busily taking this 14-part memorandum around to all the different people who are supposed to look at it. And above all, General Marshall... Uh, as well as as uh, as uh, the Stark, although Stark is really, as I said, is really not the main person. 
But both of them disappear on the on the Saturday night before Pearl Harbor. And um, then on the morning of Pearl Harbor, Bratton, you know, very early in the morning, he's at uh, the uh, War Department. He tries to get Marshall to come in. He calls him. Marshall decides to go riding. And then he comes to the office late. He takes, you know, an extra hour to eat breakfast. Then when he gets there, he insists on reading the 14-part memorandum from the beginning with, you know, agonizing deliberation and slowness. And then when he finally sends the, the, um, the alert, he sends it. Uh, it turns out they have to send it, you know, commercial cable, but they don't mark it uh, um, top priority and so forth. So this behavior by Marshall, the failure to, to remind short of the, of the need to go on alert, and then this, this obvious, I think, sabotage of a, of a uh, warning in the last 24 hours, this attracted the attention of the Army Board of Inquiry, which was held in, in 1944, and therefore in response to this, Stimson says, uh, the Army Board is unsatisfactory, I'm going to send out this guy Clausen to intimidate all the witnesses, and what he does is he finds... Colonel Rufus Bratton on the Autobahn in Germany, after the fall of, you know, the war in Europe is over. <clears throat> but they find, Clausen finds Bratton on the Autobahn and says, you're going to change your testimony. And he says, look, here are all the people who say that your testimony is false. And he's got all these, these poobahs that I've mentioned. And poor, poor Bratton then goes to pieces and says, yeah, all right, fine, I'll do it. And that's the end of his career. Uh, but it's it's an exercise. It's an unbelievably blatant exercise in tampering with witnesses by this guy Clausen, who is a, uh, a you know, like a professional bully who has, you know, he brings along secret documents to try to browbeat people with. Webster Tarpley is uh, with us discussing uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. What what about uh, a former U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Robert Theobald, who who he argued various parties high in the U.S. and British government knew the attack in advance and may even have let it happen or encouraged it to force America into the war via the back door? Well, there's no proof. Let me just interject now. If, if, if you're interested in what I have to say, go to progressivepress.com, progressivepress.com, Take a look under the flap that says um, coming soon, tab, coming soon, and then you'll see the real conspiracies of Pearl Harbor, I believe. Now, Theobald is one of the crudest, right? He, he wants to defend the Navy, right? And there's a lot of this. The Navy had a very bad reputation in the beginning of World War II. They were considered defeatists, and they were, because the social class from which they were drawn were the Roosevelt haters. The Roosevelt haters were the ones who were soft on fascism. Some of them were Mussolini lovers. Some of them were Hitler lovers. Some of them were America first, following along with Lindbergh. Uh, these, these were the political realities. The guy who preceded Kimmel in Pearl Harbor went to the White House and said to Roosevelt, you know, Roosevelt, the Navy doesn't have confidence in you. You and your advisors. We don't like you and your advisors. And he was fired. Of course, he deserved to be fired. The guy was insubordinate. He was outrageous. And he's another guy who said he didn't want the fleet stationed in Hawaii. In other words, he was a defeatist who wanted to deliver, you know, Australia. Why not? Let the Japanese take Australia. And there's a faction in Britain that says Australia can't be defended. Give it up. 
Webster, what, let, we're going to take a break here, but let me, uh, I'll ask you this and you can answer it coming out of the break. And, and, and those that suggest that there was foreknowledge point to the fact that there were no aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor. There was a training uh, carrier The problem uh, with that is it's not training. It's to deliver planes to, uh, to Wake Island. And the timing of that was decided on by Kimmel himself. So the, the foreknowledge, I think the foreknowledge is, uh, it, it's, this is, is baloney in the, in the following sense. There was a message sent to Kimmel and Short that said, consider this a war warning. Now, I'd have to say, if I were running the investigation, I'd say, Admiral Kimmel, General Short, and Admiral Block, who is the commander of the district, he has a defensive responsibility. What part of consider this a war warning don't you understand? Is there something arcane there? Now it's true. When the d- dispatches were made up, they were done by Richmond K. Turner, who is part of this, this faction, as well as, the, as Stimson. Stimson is another guy who writes the Army one. They should have put out dispatches that say, go on alert, stay on alert until I tell you. They, they don't do this. But this is not Roosevelt. These are, in effect, his enemies writing the dispatches. So they, they write these somewhat, um, what can we say, involuted, convoluted things that have too many details. They don't need to know all this stuff about diplomatic stuff. They need to hear, go on alert. And that means for Kimmel, you've got ships. Send out your ships. You've got submarines. You've got destroyers, light cruisers, seaplane tenders. You've got sampans. You've got yachts, coast guard cutters, seagoing tugs, minesweepers. Put up a picket line seven or 800 miles out, and you'll find the Japanese. This is what the Japanese did in regard to the Doolittle raid about three or four months later. Right? Okay, we've got to take a, to do. I've got to take a quick time out, Webster, back on the other side. Uh, Webster Tarpley here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Webster Tarpley joins us for a few moments yet, uh, coming up after midnight, talking to the dead. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with us. Uh, Webster, uh, much is made of the, uh, you know, these uh, uh, code-breaking, uh, you know, the enigma, or there was the, uh, the, 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 purple, uh, the purple cipher. Uh, and, and I'm understanding that a lot of this technology was, was not being employed. Uh, for example, Hawaii did not have a purple cipher. Was this deliberate? They didn't want these codes to be broken? Well, it's a complicated thing. Let me just say again, if you're interested in the book, it's a pre-order. Unfortunately, it won't be ready until uh, spring of uh, 2012, so a couple of months more. Progressivepress.com, progressivepress.com. Go to the um, coming soon, the real conspiracies of of Pearl Harbor. Um, The basic uh, fact is that the U.S. can read the Japanese purple code. Now, a commander in the field doesn't need to follow what the Japanese ambassadors going to say the next day. So there's, there is no purpose in sending this to these commanders. They need to be told, go on alert. The question of going on alert, though, when and, and in response to what, the basic idea is the U.S. can read the purple code. The U.S. gives a purple machine to the British. The British are supposed to reciprocate with a German Enigma machine. They do not. They renege. And the British are the ones who can read the JN-25 Japanese naval code. That's the one 
that tells you where and when the attack is going to come. Sir Winston Churchill does not share what he knows with Roosevelt. So the foreknowledge is in London. It's with Churchill. And he wants the U.S. in the war, yes. He wants U.S. in the war with a war in the Pacific that is not uh, what Roosevelt wants at all. The Ro- Roosevelt wants to avoid the war in the Pacific. The Allied strategy is Germany first. The Pacific is a huge diversion from the central question of, of, of Hitler and, and uh, the war in Europe, because that's the, that's the center of the world conflict. So um, we have to say that the, this entire literature that tries to blame Roosevelt is fundamentally wrong-headed, and it's, it's uh, well, the founder of the school of revisionism is Hitler. Hitler, on December 11th, today, right, this is the 70th anniversary of Hitler's speech to the Reichstag, where he blames Roosevelt for the entire Second World War. And this is exactly what all of these libertarians, right-wingers, pro-fascists, Roosevelt haters, anti-labor enthusiasts, and so forth, they all say Roosevelt is responsible. Roosevelt provoked Japan. Who founded that school of analysis? Hitler did, 70 years ago today. So, And let me also just add, the, the one concluding thing is, the idea that Roosevelt is the friend of Wall Street or the the tool of Wall Street. This is absolutely fantastic. There's an attempt to kill Roosevelt in uh, about two weeks before his inauguration that ends up killing the mayor of Chicago, a very important guy. This uh, obviously reflects, uh, I would say, the invisible government, right? The people who, who do these things, the people who did Kennedy uh, about 30 years later. Then there's one that's absolutely Wall Street and proven so, the Morgan coup. There's an attempt to organize a march on Washington styled on Mussolini's March on Rome. This is attempted to be organized by groups of operatives of the House of Morgan and the Wall Street banking interests. There is then an attempt to organize a coup in Washington using uh, anti-communist Russians about 1937-38 around a guy called Van Horn Mosley, who is a retired military officer. And then we have the following interesting fact. Stalin in 1946, told Elliot Roosevelt, son of the late president, the Churchill gang killed your father. Churchill poisoned Roosevelt, says Stalin, and Churchill is trying to poison me, says Stalin. And some would say he eventually succeeded. When U.S. Ambassador Avril Harriman, who's part of this Stimson clique, when Harriman went to the Kremlin on the 13th of April, 1945, to tell Stalin that Roosevelt was dead. Stalin said, I believe he was poisoned. I want my ambassador, Andrei Gromyko, to see the body because we want to check him for symptoms of poisoning. Unfortunately, Eleanor Roosevelt refused. And the basis for this is that when Roosevelt died uh, in his presence and had, had been in his presence for four days, was a Russian emigre woman who was an artist who was painting his portrait. So here was a woman who could come into the the uh, you know the immediate physical presence of Roosevelt with a bunch of tubes with all these things in her paint box, right? Which were not checked, obviously. Nobody went through, you know. No beef eater did checks on every tube of poison, uh, every tube of paint to see if there was poison in it. So there's a very plausible case that Roosevelt indeed was poisoned, and at any rate. 
if Stalin says so, and we have that really from two sources, um, one naming Churchill as the as the uh, guilty party, and the other one somewhat somewhat less so. This is not just some you know some kooky provincial conspiracy theorist. This is Stalin. He's sitting on top of the KGB, the GRU. He's got a whole intelligence apparatus working for him. He's got the Soviet foreign ministry. There, I think this this is something that has to be taken absolutely seriously. So, the, if you want to ask the motivation of these people in Washington, why did they want to get their own forces destroyed? They did it as part of the war of Wall Street against Roosevelt. In other words, they they feared that if Roosevelt came out of World War II as an immediate victor, right? If he'd been able to win the war in in record time, he would launch a second New Deal. There was indeed the Economic Bill of Rights of 1941 that had been incorporated into the Atlantic Charter, the freedom from want part, that you have a right to a job, a home, an education, health care, to be free from monopoly competition if you're a small businessman, to get a fair price for your products if you're a farmer, things that we, we dream of here in the United States today. Roosevelt was fighting for them already in January of 1941. Uh, and obviously, these people were around Stimson. They didn't want that. That would destroy the power of Wall Street. And then there's the question of the clash of Roosevelt with Churchill that Eliot Roosevelt writes about in his book, As He Saw It, which was Roosevelt basically said to, to Churchill, I'm going to save you, but the price will be the dismantling of the British Empire. And Churchill said, no, it won't be, and I guess got to work somehow. Well, Webster, uh, fascinating insights, and, and thank you for this. So I, I guess in summation, yeah, there was foreknowledge, but it wasn't with Roosevelt. It was with Churchill. And uh, But again, everybody knew that some attack was likely. Right. Uh, there, there was not known exactly when and where, but this was up to these guys in the field. Send out your airplanes, do aerial reconnaissance, send out your ships, put up a picket line, and and try to get you know the the, the codes if you can. The problem again being that the U.S. had a very, very limited knowledge of JN-25. If Churchill had been a loyal ally, which he was not, he would have shared the information, and it would have been possible to inflict very heavy losses on this Japanese force. Anyway, ProgressivePress.com, and it's coming soon, spring 2012, and pre-order it if, uh, if any of this is of interest. Webster, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Webster Tarpley, tarpley.net. All right, when we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking to the dead. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And uh, for up-to-the-minute uh, information on The Conspiracy Show on radio and television, go to the website, www.theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, RichardSerrett.com is still up and operational, but you can get to it. It's linked to 
theconspiracyshow.com. Uh, so I'm just trying to give out the one website now, theconspiracyshow.com. And uh, just click on radio. That'll uh, get you to um, the radio section. And upcoming shows are there, past shows. Uh, there's a book club, etc. All right. We are about to launch into a fascinating discussion. And, uh, well, it's really the only discussion, isn't it? Death and what happens to us after we die. Everything else is just uh, kind of a sidebar story. Uh, and uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who is a, a frequent contributor to this program, uh, has put together a wonderful new book, uh, which uh, posits the... the uh, or or, or uh, takes us into an interesting area, and that is, you know, what happens in the future if we're able to contact the other side? Imagine, for example, uh, being able to Skype <laughs> the other side or, uh, uh, you know, pick up a phone and talk to the other side. Um, that's going to change everything, obviously. Well, it, and there have been attempts in the past with the technology that was available to them. Thomas Edison was working on some sort of a communication device. Uh, when he died. It wasn't widely publicized at, his, at the time, but we now know about it. And um, Nikola Tesla, too. The great inventor Nikola Tesla was working on something. Now, that I don't know as much about, and, and I'm, we're going to find out uh, what Nikola Tesla was working on. And we're going to do that right now with, as I mentioned, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who has now uh, penned in excess of 45 books, many of the major encyclopedic works on the paranormal and the supernatural. And uh, we welcome her once again to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Rosemary. Hi there, Richard. How are you? Well, busy as usual. I'm in my winter break, actually. I uh, got done with my presentations this fall, but winter is a time that I spend doing a lot of research and writing and developing new projects. So, um that's what I'm doing, working on new books, and, of course, taking a little time to enjoy the holidays. Good for you. Okay, well, um, let, let's just launch right into uh, some of the people that were working on devices to contact the other side. I mentioned Edison. What was that device exactly? Many people think that Edison was working on a telephone to the dead, and he did express an interest in uh, building a device that could communicate with the dead. He, he was not a person interested in the occult. In fact, he had a great disdain for things like the Ouija board and, and was not interested in mediumship. But he was interested in the afterlife and what happens to us after we die. He had um, a, a really rather unusual view for his, his day, uh, which was that we kind of split up into uh, packets of energy that he called life units and uh, that uh, a soul splits up and goes into a big collective, and then uh, new souls are formed from um, all of these mingling life units. It's almost kind of a Buddhist view of things. But at any rate, he said there really ought to be a way uh, to communicate with um, the, the life unit energy, you know, with consciousness in the afterlife. Whether or not he actually produced a working machine has been the subject of great controversy since he died in uh, uh, the early 1930s. Were there blueprints? Were there notes? Anything that he left behind? There's been no evidence left behind. And now he was a um, voluminous 
note keeper. He was always sketching and doodling and writing, jotting things down. He kept diaries. There were plans. You know, he was responsible for many, many patents, uh, quite the businessman, and uh, believed very strongly in, in keeping records of things. So no one's ever really found any plans, drawings, sketches, uh, or a prototype of the device, uh, even more important. Well, then where um, did this, this legend uh, or, or, or rumor come from? Is it just a rumor that he was working on this, or were there eyewitnesses that, that talked to him about it? Well, Edison himself talked about it quite a bit. He gave a lot of interviews, especially in the 1920s, and um, said that there ought to be such a device. He was going to work on such a device, or he was working on such a device, and whether or not he would be successful. Um, he, he wouldn't speculate. He uh, didn't really describe the device to the media. Uh, he more uh, talked about the concept of communicating with the dead. And so people have taken that as uh, an indication that he actually did produce a device. There have been stories that have circulated in the decades that um, colleagues of his saw this device, that they attended uh, secret sessions uh, of it. Uh, some of these are passed off as almost like urban legend. The thing is, we have no written record. Uh, and, of course, conspiracy people are very fond of saying, well, uh, there, there were written notes and plans and a prototype, but after he died, uh, they were confiscated by, uh, you know, usually the government, uh, that vague term, the government, uh, because uh, they didn't want the technology to get out there. Uh, I don't think that he, he actually had uh, a full working device. He certainly talked about it. He may have even thought about it, conceived how it could be done, but I don't think he actually produced any device that could be used for experimentation. Maybe his investors, you know, he was a, he was a uh, let's face it, I mean, he had uh, uh, some big names behind him, Westinghouse and so forth. Maybe they just pulled him aside and said, listen, Ixnay on the, uh, the spirit communication, you're hurting our stocks. <laughs> well, you would think that if such a device were available, if he had even a prototype, uh, that it, it would be a a major development. I mean, this is the question. What happens to us after we die? This is the question that has gripped human beings throughout our entire history. We, we want to know, uh, and we have looked for ways to contact the dead and get information. Uh, we've, we've had many attempts with technology to penetrate the veil, and some of them have been strangely successful, I do think that we will have the technology to reliably contact the dead uh, in the near future, perhaps even in our lifetimes. Well, that's an, actually an interesting uh, question we can put to, uh, to the audience, and that is, do you think that one day we'll have the technology to contact the other side, and would you utilize such technology to contact uh, the other side? Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is here with us on AM740, The Conspiracy Show, Talking to the Dead, uh, her new book. Listen, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, I want to talk to you about Nikola Tesla. Now, he, he's sort of the flip side, uh, the anti-Edison. Here's a guy who didn't take any notes, didn't write anything down, and, uh, uh, and yet there is some suggestion he too may have been working on such a device. We'll find out about that and much more with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Stay with us. 
a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett, all one word. And if you're in Canada uh, and you happen to have missed an episode of the uh, Conspiracy Television Show, which aired uh, this past October, November on uh, Vision TV across Canada, uh, only in Canada, though, you can you can uh, see, the, see the episodes on, uh, on the web. All 31 uh, episodes from seasons one and two, and that's at visiontv.ca. Uh, forward slash shows, forward slash the hyphen conspiracy hyphen show. Now, that's a long, convoluted uh, address, so all you need to do is go to theconspiracyshow.com and on the homepage, under television, you'll see a little um, button that says Watch the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett online. Just click that, it'll take you right to it. And then just pick the episode you want to see, and away you go. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, talking about uh, Talking to the Dead, her new book. Okay, Nikola Tesla... Uh, what a wild guy this was. Uh, very eccentric. He, he was frightened by women who wore pearls. This, <laughs> this is just one of his little quirks. Uh, but no denying, an absolute you know, genius. Um, uh, he was working on a, a, a piece of technology also to, to, to communicate with the dead, was he not? Well, uh, he was like uh, a lot of the great inventors around the turn of the 20th century, uh, sort of accidentally stumbling into this area. Um, the inventors were creating telecommunications devices, radio receivers, uh, and, and things like that. You know, we had the telephone, the telegraph, the phonograph, uh, radio transmission. And from the beginning, the people who were involved in developing these technologies realized that they were getting some sort of signals or messages that could not be explained. And Tesla was one of them. Well, and Tesla, as, as you said, Richard, I mean, he was so far ahead of his time. He was a genius. And if he had been more organized like Edison, uh, we would probably have free electricity on this planet. Uh, but um, he was much more interested in, in developing ideas. He was not the businessman that Edison was. He even worked for Edison for a time. And Edison pretty much put him out of commercial business, because that's what Edison was all about. Patents, commerce, nailing down the rights to do things, selling things, and whatnot. But at any rate, Tesla believed in interplanetary communication, an idea which was absolutely ridiculed in the press at the time, and it still is in many quarters. And he also believed that aliens, uh, extraterrestrials, were walking around on the planet. Uh, so he was way ahead of his time, but he built this massive radio receiver out in Colorado Springs, and uh, the intention of it was to uh, collect information that could pre predict coming storms. And one night he was in his, um, his laboratory there, very late at night, and he suddenly realized that he was getting what seemed to be intelligent rhythmic signals coming into this receiver. Uh, and he said later in an interview, you know, look, I know what in, uh, stat, you know, space static is like. I know what the aurora borealis sounds like, etc. This was not it. This was something intelligent, and he assumed it to be interplanetary. 
Um, today, there's speculation that he may have been picking up the, no- the actual noise of stars and not really realizing it. But he said it was intelligent. It was not random pattern. Uh, it seemed to be an intelligent communication. And so possibly he could have been penetrating the veil between uh, life and the, and the afterlife. He interpreted it as interplanetary. That was sort of his orientation. But um, it, it clearly was not of this earth. And Marconi experienced the same thing. He got um, very strange, intelligent um, signals uh, in, in his own work with radio and uh, also told the media that he thought uh, they, uh, the signals were coming from other planets. And he was so ridiculed by the media that he just quit talking about it. That, unfortunately, has been the response of our institutions uh, that um, we, we seem to want, want to have the technology and the means to communicate with the dead, but if someone comes up with evidence of it, they are um, made out to be laughingstocks in, in the press. Well, it, it, which is interesting. Disconnect. It, it's true. It's interesting. Uh, well, there's, it raises a couple of questions, and one you, which you address in the book, and that is exactly who are we talking to? I mean, we we, we sort of overlay our our cultural, um, uh, our own cultural biases onto it, and whether we were talking to uh, whether Marconi was talking to uh, an ET or the dead sort of depends on how you you're approaching the subject. But I mean, that is a possibility that we're, we're not with all of these devices, even with Frank's box, which you're familiar with. We, we may not be talking to the other side. We may not be talking necessarily to the spirit realm. It could be we're talking to ourselves, as you point out, in a parallel dimension. We could be talking to ETs. I mean, how do we? How do we? Uh, how do you approach this? Right now, we don't have any real reliable way of confirming the identity of who we're talking to. And I've had many communications uh, in real time with. Um, radio sweep devices that, that use radio technology, um, communications that I can't explain. Uh, we have to take identities, if the communicators give them, at their face value. There are researchers around the world who specialize in helping the grieving uh, connect with their dead loved ones. And uh, people do say that they recognize voices or they get an answer to a question that's very personally evidential to them. That is, it's a response that only that dead person could make or information that the dead, uh, a certain dead person would know. There's even been some forensics research um, done mostly in a laboratory in Italy to match voice prints from EVP or electronic voice phenomena evidence to recorded voices of the living. And uh, there have been some rather startling matches made that are very difficult to explain away. But most of the time, the communications are so short and the uh, exchanges are so brief that we really don't collect enough information to know exactly who we're dealing with. So uh, there are any number of possibilities. There, uh, We could be talking to the dead. We could be talking to other entities. There have been beings who have identified themselves as non-human beings who are helping us in this communication, emerging communication technology. Uh, and 
the idea that we're talking to versions of ourselves in parallel dimensions is not all that far-fetched. Physics tells us that we live in a multiverse with dimensions stacked on top of us that are really tied to the Earth and uh, that there are probably versions of ourselves in these other dimensions. And these versions could be doing the same thing we're doing or similar. There could be versions of ourselves clustered around prototype devices trying to communicate with their concept of the afterlife. They could even be talking to us, thinking that we're entities or, or the dead. All right, we'll uh, take a time out, and then on the other side, we'll uh, uh, get to some phone calls here on The Conspiracy Show, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from just about anywhere, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 866-744-740. Do you think in the future, within your lifetime, we might be able to communicate with the other side? What does that mean exactly? And would you... Uh, take advantage of such technology. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show with Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking to the dead. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Short of a live alien or indisputable evidence that Santa is a Freemason, a gift certificate for conspiracy culture is the greatest gift you can give them. Conspiracy Culture. Visit Toronto's best source for all suppressed and conspiratorial information. Conspiracy Culture has books, magazines, DVDs, and more. Best of all, Conspiracy Culture gift certificates. Visit 1696 Queen Street West, Toronto, east of Roncesvalles. Even in times of faith, there is a need to question. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us until... Uh, we dim the lights and say goodnight here on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about Talking to the Dead, her new book. Um, EVPs, Electronic Voice Phenomena. This is uh, uh, where you can take an audio recorder, a digital or analog, I suppose, and uh, uh, you go out into a, a haunted location or someplace and you ask a question. And then when you get home, maybe, you play the tape back. Uh, even though you may not have seen the the VU meters moving while you were out there, but when you get back, suddenly there's a, uh, a voice on the on the tape captured by, on the tape uh, and uh, some disembodied voice. Now, the EVP phenomena. How far back does that go? I mean, uh, do do you do you know the sort of the earliest recordings of EVPs? It goes all the way back to the turn of the 20th century and uh, to Edison's invention of the phonograph. Uh, the first evidence that we have of an accidental EVP uh, goes to uh, around, actually right around 1900, when um, a researcher who was studying uh, shamanic rituals in Siberia recorded some rituals, and there were mystery voices on the recording. And uh, when he heard the mystery voices on, on the uh, recording, then he deliberately uh, recorded with the intent of 
capturing the evidence again and got them. While the uh, the rituals were taking place, there were these voices that sounded in the environment um, that could not be attributed to living people. So the the phonograph is really our earliest technology, um, mass technology piece of equipment that enabled us to do EVP. And with the development of magnetic recording technology, uh, and then of course uh, radio broadcast technology, uh, various technologies kind of merged together, and uh, we have a number of devices now that uh, enable us to capture EVP. To this day, nobody knows exactly how these discarnate and disembodied voices get impressed on a recording device. There have been all sorts of speculation. How, For example, how do spirits speak without a larynx? Uh, do they speak through the microphone? Do they bypass the microphone and, and impress their words directly uh, on magnetic tape or, or on digital technology? Nobody knows, but it happens. Uh, paranormal investigators uh, look for EVP when they do investigations of haunted places. I've done that many times over the years. And um, then there are other researchers, and I've done this kind of research myself, who work at home. And you can do it with any sort of recording technology to, uh, to ask questions, leave a little space for answers. And um, much to your surprise, you may get direct answers to those questions. I call it passive EVP because you don't hear the voices you don't hear the answers while you're doing the recording. But there has been uh, an emergence of technology since about um, the 1970s. It goes back a little before that, but the 1970s, they really started to see it pick up, where radio technology could be used to get real-time communication. There's something about background noise that seems to enhance spirit communication a steady sound like static or white noise or rushing water, fans, equipment, generators, even crowd babble, you know, the indistinct noise of many people talking. And uh, it's as though whatever's communicating from other dimensions needs some sort of sound to modulate. And uh, so now we have these devices called radio sweep, which uh, are, are like radios set to constant scan, as though you were, if you had a manual dial, you were uh, running your dial up and down the broadcast band as fast as possible, and it creates kind of a jumble of noise. Right, right. And we get real-time voices on that. You can hear them. You can ask questions and hear the answers in real time. This is the principle behind uh, Frank's Box. exciting development. This is the, 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 the technology behind the unit that's called Frank's Box, is it not? That's right. And uh, that's named after Frank Sumption, who really popularized it a few years ago for paranormal investigators. But these devices have been uh, experimented with uh, actually since uh, the days of, of radio transmission. We've had uh, things called direct radio voice, where people used radios to tune between stations and, and hear mystery voices back. And um, actual radio sweep devices uh, started coming into experimental use more in the 1970s. But uh, those were mainly held in the hands of dedicated inventors, you know, electronics experts, computer technicians, 
scientists and, and whatnot. And today that technology is available for anybody. Now, the, um, the, the difference between an EVP and Frank's box is it's not, it's not passive. It allows you to carry on live, uh, so-called, two-way conversations with whatever entity you're dealing with, unlike the EVP is where you don't discover the voice until you get home and play it back. That's right. And with the passive EVP, you really don't have the opportunity to a- ask follow-up questions. But with real-time communication, you do, to a limited degree. And I stress that it is limited because um, uh, we don't really fully understand the process of this communication. Our technology is probably very primitive compared to what we truly need for like a conversation like you and I are having tonight. But you can have meaningful exchanges. Typically, the answers are rather short, just a few words. You might only have an exchange of um, a handful of questions with a particular communicator, and then either the the link is lost or uh, we, we don't really know what happens. I think it's very hard to hold these links, but nonetheless, uh, investigators and researchers have collected thousands of real-time exchanges that cannot be explained naturally. It is, however, very controversial, as you can imagine. Uh, One of the earlier, um, I guess, incarnations of this radio sweep device was something called the Spiricom. What can you tell me about the Spiricom? The Spiricom is... Uh, one of the most uh, controversial uh, devices in the whole history of the field. And uh, uh, it's been both supported and debunked many times over, and there's still a lot of questions. But Spiricom uh, was a, a device using radio frequency, um, again, for attempted real-time communication. The man spearheading this effort was named George Meek, and uh, he had... Uh, technical background, a passionate interest in metaphysics and spirituality, and after his retirement, uh, devoted himself to studying ways to technologically have communication with the other side. And uh, he experimented a lot with radio frequencies. Um, Many researchers would find that certain things would work for them, but not for other people. That seems to be the case throughout the field. But at any rate, he wound up hooking up with a medium named William O'Neill, who conducted experiments for him. Um, And it was a very odd relationship, because the two were separated by geography. And O'Neill, Meek would supply the equipment and the setup to O'Neill. He would work at his home and record sessions, and then send uh, audio and videotape back to Meek. So Meek was not really participating in the actual experiments. Well, O'Neill worked for quite some time with no results at all. He was a talented medium. Uh, He was also a ventriloquist. At the end of his life, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and uh, actually died in a mental institution. These are things that really set off the alarms with the skeptics that he probably faked things. A ventriloquist Uh, and and a schizophrenic. Yeah, that would raise some some red flags. (laughs) Well, and also being a ventriloquist, too. Yes, yes. And he he worked with children and puppets and things like that. Well, he worked for a good long time having no success with spirit communications and then suddenly started to have some very astounding results. 
uh, producing long conversations with um, allegedly discarnate entities who spoke in a very robotic voice. Uh, Now, skeptics have said that this monotone robotic voice uh, could be produced with an electrolarynx. Uh, that's the thing that makes people sound like robots talking like that. Well, these exchanges that he recorded were in that fashion. No one's ever been able to d- duplicate Spiricom, and people have tried. Meek published all of his uh, schematics for his devices. Uh, there were several of them that he uh, worked with, several prototypes. But after he collected some evidence from O'Neill, he really thought he had, he had cracked the code here for the afterlife, and he called a big press conference and uh, announced his findings, and like others before him, was thoroughly ridiculed uh, by the media. Um, reporters either didn't write about it or they didn't give it much attention or they just flat out made fun of it. And uh, Meek really thought that he was going to usher in a new era of spirituality for humanity. He felt that he had the proof of the afterlife and that when people were confronted with this proof, um, we would transform overnight, globally, uh, secure in the knowledge that there was such a thing as, as life after death. And, of course, that just didn't happen. Actually, I think if... We had proof of the afterlife. We would be plunged more into controversy and chaos than any sort of unified spiritual transformation. Uh, that's true, and uh, I mean, if you have absolute proof, there's no 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 more room for faith. And where would we be without faith? Uh, well, very true, and uh, all the teachings of various religions about the afterlife and what happens to us and why uh, would be up for reexamination. And uh, there might be evidence that would confirm some of that and refute some of that. So there's a lot riding on provable communications with the dead. What's what's the the in in uh, your work as a paranormal researcher investigator? Uh, to your mind, the best piece of equipment now uh, to be used in spirit communication? Uh, I'm sorry, I missed part of that question uh, about the equipment. What's the best piece of equipment right now uh, currently available? Is it Frank's box or is there a next generation? I think that um, variations of radio sweep equipment, which paranormal investigators call the ghost box or Frank's box, is um, at the forefront. And uh, researchers are experimenting also with uh, video, trying to get image as well as sound. But uh, the best results have been gotten with radio sweep. And uh, there are many variations of that, using actual radio broadcast or augmenting it with recordings of phonemes with syllables called allophones and phonemes, that is, fragments of human speech. Uh, that can be um, manipulated. And uh, researchers are all over the world are conducting these experiments. Um, I think that at some point we will have something more, uh, more reliable than radio sweep. It does have its problems. Uh, you're listening to a jumble of radio noise going on in the background with spirit voices. You're listening for spirit voices that aren't talking 
through the radio so much, but on top of the radio sound. That is, they ride on top of the jumble of noise. So there are hazards of um, interpreting bits and pieces of actual radio broadcast as the answers themselves. Um, skeptics call it, you know, matrixing, where you sort of hear what you want to hear. Many of the communications are not very clear, and they do require the use of software or some sort of augmentation to, to clarify. There have been um, many tests with EVP in general in terms of um, are we clearly hearing what we think we're hearing? And um, experiments where groups of uh, subjects have been given recordings and asked to interpret them, and sometimes it is true that interpretations are not uniform. Uh, it does take a, a bit of an ear to uh, adapt to this process, to be able to hear things. Uh, and so we, we're a long way off from... Um, from provable communications, but the evidence is so tantalizing. Uh, and there are so many communications that, that are very clear and cannot be dismissed as just random chance. Well, if I, had a, if I captured an EVP, let's say I took the recorder uh, to some haunted location, and I knew for a fact that I was alone in the room where I was with, un- with, with another person, but they were not talking, uh, and I got home and I, and I played it back, and there I captured something, a voice of some sort. I wouldn't be so concerned as to what it was saying. The fact is that there was a voice that didn't belong to me or my associate in that, in that, in that location. To me, that would be enough. Well, it is for many people, especially the grieving who are looking to reconnect with dead loved ones. And uh, the, the results of their own experiments, are, there are many experts who uh, offer their services in uh, spirit communications as well, uh, it, it becomes a, a personal article of faith for them. You know, they don't need science to tell them whether or not they had evidential communication. They know in their own heart they did. But science is very uneasy with this field because it, it can't be reliably replicated in the laboratory. We uh, still aren't able with with much success to call up specific communicators on demand. Um, You never know what you're going to get in many sessions. You might get something astounding. You might get very little at all. I've run uh, many, many sessions with radio sweep devices. I have, um, uh, actually I've got about eight of them of of different models and and, uh, inventors. And um, I've run many sessions where not very much has happened at all. And then other sessions where uh, I've collected quite a few communications that I feel are evidential. So um, unfortunately, there's no institutional funding for science to, uh, to whet their appetite, the, the appetite of scientists, to get into this research. It's considered a career killer for many of them because uh, of the uncertain nature of it and uh, the fact that it is subject to ridicule and potential uh, backlash reactions from um, institutions, from religion. Um, Many people feel that this is an area we shouldn't be messing around in, that if God wanted us to talk to the dead, God would make it possible, which I think is is a very outmoded um, way of looking at things. There are 
are a lot of things on this planet that we have that our biblical ancestors did not have, and uh, it's hard to imagine that God doesn't want us to have technology. Uh, well, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, religion or uh, the church because they have to do kind of a fine. They have to tread lightly on this issue because, on the one hand, uh, they you know they'll they'll issue. Uh, warnings against conjuring up spirits. But for them, they can't, on the other hand, totally rule out spirit communication because then they would be undermining their whole raison d'etre, which is all about the afterlife. And survival. And if we have survival in the afterlife, then we we have uh, intelligent consciousness, which is capable of communicating. Yes, and there's a so, long tradition. Uh, it It is quite a Pandora's box. Now, interestingly, the Catholic Church... Uh, has had um, some of its authority figures issue statements on communication with the dead, that it's okay. It's okay to commu- try and communicate with the dead. But they're also coming at it from the standpoint that their expectation is that whatever communication is obtained is going to reinforce the Catholic view of the afterlife. Um, some fundamentalists, on the other hand, on the Protestant side of things, um, very conservative fundamentalists, are against this. They consider it the devil's work. Uh, let's say hello to Arthur in Toronto. Arthur, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, it's still amazing, as you know, when you walk along the street and see people talking on a cell phone, no wires. How can a voice travel through the thin air, even with electricity like TV or radio, it's still amazing. But the thing is, one scripture says, I don't know where it is, but you can look it up. The dead know not anything. That's God speaking. That's why he says they'll have a resurrection. Bring back a person, not originally because a person turns to dust, as the Bible says, but that same person will come back in the resurrection. So we cannot enter, uh, mingle with the devil's prophecies because the devil and his horde of angels called the Nephilim, said, I can turn all people away from you, God, no matter what I do. It might sound innocent. The thing is, we do not get involved with that. Well, except, Arthur, there is a long tradition in the Church of communion with the saints, and the saints have been known to come back, and, and they, were, they were flesh and blood at one point, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, there, as I say, a long oral tradition of, of, of people communicating with the saints. That's, that's spirit communication, isn't it, uh, Rosemary? It certainly is, and so it's, it's a very strange, um, it's almost schizophrenic in itself, some of the attitudes toward communication, that it's okay to talk to the saints but not to other dead people. And it seems to me, well, if, if you're talking to the human dead who have become saints, then the other should be um, uh, possible as well. well you, uh, would, you would think... Take Christ Jesus, for instance. When he died, did he come back and speak to people when he died? He certainly Never. did. After, after, well, when he when he rose from the dead, he certainly did. But when he ascended into heaven, the second, no, he did not. Uh, although some people claim that they are in communication with uh, with with Jesus. So who really knows? Arthur, thank you for the call. Right. Uh, let's take a time out when we come back, Rosemary. I, I want to talk to you about uh, spirit communication uh, without the technology. And um, we have uh, cases, for example, of um, uh, uh, mediums, uh, certainly uh, in, um, 
in the uh, mid 20th century, uh, document not documented cases, but uh, alleged cases of um, materialization of mediums where they were actually able to uh, uh, physically conjure up this, the, uh, the, the spirit of the deceased person. Um, I just get, I, I want to get your take on that, whether or not there's any credence to these, these stories. Back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and her new book, Talking to the Dead. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. A few moments remain with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Just a reminder, next week on The Conspiracy Show, Patrick White will be here from Conspiracy Culture, uh, and he'll share his his must-read list. Uh, Of course, Patrick is uh, the owner of Conspiracy Culture. It's a, a primarily a bookstore, DVD, uh, uh, CDs they sell as well. Uh, but these uh, these are books and CDs, DVDs, dedicated to the the field of uh, conspiracies, the paranormal, supernatural. He'll be uh, joining us, uh, I believe, around 11.30 p.m. live in studio, and uh, he'll come uh, prepared with a list of uh, those books you really need to uh, to have on your bedside, at your bedside. All right, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, I want to talk about material materialization mediums in a moment, but something else just occurred to me uh, when we're talking about spirit communication. Over the years, doing this radio show, I have heard from dozens of people on air and probably three or four times that many off air uh, who, have, who claim they have received telephone calls from a dead relative or a dead friend. Is this something that, uh, that, that uh, you've looked into uh, and researched? I have. It's a fascinating phenomenon, literally called phone calls from the dead. And um, the research goes back to the 1930s on this. Uh, a couple of parapsychologists, um, Raymond Bayless and D. Scott Rogo, did a very interesting study uh, and published a book called Phone Calls from the Dead. But, um, yes, it is um, a phenomenon in which the living receive an unexpected phone call from someone on the other side. And sometimes they don't know the person has died, uh, and they carry on a conversation, uh, and then they discover that the call was placed after the person died. Sometimes the calls come in on anniversaries, like a dead person's birthday, a wedding anniversary, a death anniversary date. The calls usually are very short, a lot of static on them, like um, there's a lot of interference on the line, but people recognize the voices. And uh, those have been well documented, and they, they still go on today. People to, I have uh, collected stories from people who have gotten phone calls from the dead. I've even heard recordings. Uh, left on uh, voicemail and answering machines. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an uncanny uh, phenomenon. What the am- impetus for this seems, seems to uh, come mostly from the other side. We don't really know how these bridges are made, 
but something has to happen on the other side for this penetration of the veil between worlds to take place. And um, many of the communicators have stressed that they have fleeting time. They only have a few moments. They can't stay long or things are not going to last very long. It indicates that uh, obviously this communication is difficult or we would be doing it already on a more reliable, regular basis. All right, let's say hello to Les. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Les. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead. Okay, yes, uh, I just wanted to uh, clear up the mystery of the of Edison's machine with, uh, uh, for talking to the dead with. There was a documentary film made many years ago and interviewed uh, several employees from his laboratory, and one of them told the story. Apparently late in life he was just letting everything go, and um, one time a journalist walked into the laboratory unannounced, started asking him questions, and um, asked him what everybody was doing in the laboratory that day, and that particular day he really didn't know what any of them were doing. So he told the journalist that they were working on developing a machine to communicate with the dead. In other words, he just pulled this story um, out of his hip pocket as a way to uh, amuse uh, a visiting reporter. Uh, he just didn't want to admit that uh, he didn't know what was going on in his laboratory that day, and he just couldn't think of anything else to say. Well, that's one possible version, although I think, Rosemary, you indicated that he did a number of interviews over the, uh, you know, in the late 20s where he talked about uh, this, this work, did he not? He did. Uh, when he sat down for formal interviews, uh, a number of times he commented on um, his, uh, his interest in the afterlife and uh, the fact that there ought to be communication with the dead and uh, even that he was working on it or was going to work on it. Uh, and he, he wrote articles himself um, about his his interest in his statements of his belief in the afterlife. So uh, there's a lot of tantalizing evidence out there that something may have been going on, but uh, we're, we're lacking uh, really hard proof. And considering his, his habits with his other devices and the notes and the records and whatnot, uh, for them to all be strangely absent in regard to um, a machine to talk to the dead, it's just very peculiar. I, I'm not sure we'll ever really solve the mystery of it. All right, let's... There have been plans that have uh, surfaced, you know, supposed blueprints and descriptions of these devices. They've been debunked as hoaxes. These things do happen um, in topics like this. All right, Les, thank you for the call. Uh, materialization mediums. Uh, I mean, it's not specifically uh, something that you address in, in, in this book because this is you're mainly focused on you know the technology. Um, but what do you make of the, the the claims? I mean, this happened. There were there were widely publicized reports uh, in England. Of course, the spiritualist movement very 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 big over there, well into the uh, the twentieth century. Uh, of famous materialization mediums who were able to produce, had ectoplasm emanating from them, uh, and, and the actual uh, people in attendance claimed that the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the spirit of a, a dead relative appeared before them. Uh, I remember one case of a, a young child. This was recorded on tape. Uh, a, a, a deceased child, 11 or 12 years old, was running around playing with a ball in this room and so forth. Uh, what do you make of those claims, those stories? I think there's something to it, uh, although there was a lot of fraud back in the 1800s and into the early 1900s in physical mediumship. Uh, it was um, 
uh, a money maker for a lot of people or getting a lot of you know, could get a lot of attention. Psychical researchers were intently studying people with mediumistic ability, but we do have talented uh, physical mediums today who carry on that uh, tradition of ectoplasm, a, a substance, a kind of a between-world substance that gets produced out of their own form that enables um, this crossover between the worlds. Now, interestingly, with the, um, the other forms of communication through the devices, people who have the most natural mediumistic ability get better results than people who don't. Uh, anyone can run these devices and get results, but the really good results uh, consistently happen with people who have a natural mediumistic bent. And there seems to be something about uh, natural mediumship combined with technology that um, propels this, this whole, um, the results forward in a more dramatic way. Uh, and many researchers, myself included, uh, have noticed that the more you use these devices, uh, the more you start getting uh, information mediumistically as well. It's not coming just through the device, but also through you, through mental mediumship. Physical mediumship is another extension of that, where you're actually dealing with some sort of spirit form. And um, also very controversial and unfortunately very checkered with a lot of fraud from the past, but I, I do believe that it is possible to do these things. Have you ever uh, witnessed a, uh, a materialization medium uh, a sort of conjure up a, a spirit in full, full form? I have not, and I, I would like, there are several mediums today in England and Australia who are at the forefront of this field. And uh, Tom and, and uh, Lisa Butler, who run the um, Association for Transcommunication, uh, have had a number of sittings with these mediums and uh, have witnessed some, ve some very startling um, evidence. And uh, I, I would like to do that myself someday. I hope to be able to. Victor Zamet, is that the gentleman in Australia, the medium? Uh, no, there's um, one named David Thompson, and I'm not sure whether he's from Australia or England. There's only a handful of them. Uh, Zamet is more of a researcher ah, than a okay. me medium. All right. Listen, um, congratulations on uh, this book, Talking to the Dead, uh, Rosemary. What's next? Uh, what are you working on right now? I'm uh, working on another form of... Primitive Communication with the Dead, a book about the Ouija board ah, and one of my uh, the pros and cons of the Ouija board. That's a great topic and uh, a rich, a rich uh, a vein to be mined for sure. Uh, there, there's um, so much downside, I think, to the Ouija board. I've been, you know, speaking out against it for many years uh, in the wrong hands. It's it's a very dangerous little parlor trick, uh, and I I. My biggest complaint is that it's, you know, it's sold in toy stores and targeted to children. That's the, the, the last place it should be uh, uh, targeted, I think. In any event, Rosemary, always a pleasure, and uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you uh, next month. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we'll uh, talk to you in early 2012. Thank you, and same to you, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Talking to the Dead. Uh, thank you to uh, Webster Tarpley as well, and uh, for production... Uh, my new uh, technical producer, David. Ah, 
David Gaskin. David Gaskin. It's going to take me a few weeks, David, and I'll get it. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. All right, back next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.